Welcome to the June 26th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Job chapters 5 through 7 and Acts chapter 8, but we'll only focus on the New Testament in this podcast. If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at mattellis1997 at gmail.com. I may answer it on the next podcast. Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 tells us about Saul again. At least it opens up uh, regarding Saul. And uh, the authors of the book, the Holy Spirit and Luke, want us to see how God was weaving the story together of how a terrorist, and yes, that's what the Apostle Paul was, how a terrorist would become one of the greatest advocates and missionaries that Christianity has ever known. And so we're told about the bad things that the Apostle Paul did before we read about his conversion here coming up very soon. We're told that Paul, actually Saul, a good Hebrew name, and by the way, I'll just tell you right now, uh, God changes his name. He goes from Saul to Paul, and uh, we believe that God changed it. Saul was comfortable with having that changed. So what's the significance? Well, one, I think the biggest reason uh, for Paul is that as a missionary to the Gentiles, um, he would need a good Gentile name, a good Greek name, which Paulus was, Paul was. Saul was a Hebrew name. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that Saul was perfectly fine with switching his name from Saul to its Greek equivalent, Paul, um, so that he could uh, have a name that much more readily uh, was familiar and could easily be said by those Gentiles that he was going to be ministering to. Anyway, let's get back. We're uh, told that Saul agreed to put Stephen to death, so the first Christian martyr was killed and Saul approved of it. Uh, one day, he will die, Saul will die, for the same Lord and Savior, but we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet. But what we really see in the first four verses of this chapter is persecution that quickly becomes a roaring flame that scatters the early believers. Listen to verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So follow me as I take you down a rabbit trail for just a few moments. When we think back to the Old Testament, we realize that the Lord had commanded that the people be fruitful and replenish the earth, right? The command was first given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. God said, be fruitful and fill the earth. But it was later given again to Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, right? Because the flood happened, killed everybody off, but now it's just Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. And so now in Genesis 9, 7, God once again gives the command to be fruitful and replenish the earth, fill the earth. One of the reasons why is the earth is going to get out of control without mankind to manage it and steward it. Um, and so God said, you have kids and get out there and manage and steward the earth, fill the earth. 
The only problem was that Noah's descendants didn't seem to take the command seriously. So we read in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, of the Tower of Babel. And at that location, the Lord miraculously caused the people to immediately speak different languages. That happened at the Tower of Babel. God gave them the ability to immediately speak and only to understand another language than what they had been speaking. And we're told that they scattered as a result because of this gift of languages, they scattered. So the gift of languages scattered the people in Genesis chapter 11. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we hear Jesus telling the early Christians to be witnesses and go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So start in Jerusalem and work your way out. Fill the earth with this message of the gospel. They were to scatter across the globe with the good news, but like Noah's descendants, it doesn't seem, it doesn't appear that they immediately complied. So the Lord gave them the gift of languages in Acts 2, and then he also allowed persecution to come so that Christians scattered. So in Genesis, God used the gift of languages to scatter the people, and in Acts, God used the gift of languages to draw the disciples together with the gospel so that persecution could scatter them as well. There is a parallel here. Well, once again, we're reminded that our good God, as we think about this, we're reminded that our good God sometimes uses very undesirable means to accomplish his purposes. Persecution was horrible. Some Christians lost their jobs, others were thrown in jail, and still others were killed. But God used persecution to get the message of the gospel out, beginning at Jerusalem. The gospel message would make it toward the ends of the known world by the end of the book of Acts. So we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And so what they're doing is they're fulfilling the first three uh, concentric circles of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The first circle is Jerusalem, and then around that is Judea, then out beyond that is Samaria, and so that's where the gospel's going. Paul's going to come along, and the gospel's going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, in verses 5 through 8, we read that Philip, one of the deacons named in Acts chapter 6, went to Samaria. And we realize from reading the Gospels that the Jews despised Samaritans and wouldn't dare walk through the territory of Samaria. But in Acts 1.8, it was playing out. The Lord, like I said just a few moments ago, was enabling the Christians to overcome their racism so that they could share the good news of the Gospel beyond the Jewish territory. Begin in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. And if we follow the process in Acts 1.8, as I just shared with you, those that four, the four concentric circles, the disciples had reached the third of four concentric circles. In fact, as we read the book of Acts, it shows us how the disciples moved out from Acts 1, uh, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In fact, we could arguably say that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 might be the basic outline of the book of Acts how the gospel made its way from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. 
It's important to note that as Philip brought the gospel of, uh, to Samaria and healed many people, the city's residents were happy. Hate was beginning to be replaced with joy because the gospel was penetrating and changing hearts. Just listen to verse 8. So there, so there was great joy in that city. The gospel brings happiness. In verses 9 through 13, we read that a man named Simon, who had practiced sorcery, trusted in Jesus, and was baptized. He'd become a fellow believer, but through the eyes of Luke, we realize that Simon had a problem. He enjoyed the supernatural power he had before he got saved and was now watching with awe as Philip performed miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to come back to that. In verses 14 through 17, we read that the apostles, who were the pastors, there was not a lead pastor in Jerusalem. The apostles were the pastors. That church had 12 pastors. We read that the apostles in Jerusalem heard that people in Samaria were coming to faith in Christ. So Peter and John were sent to investigate what was going on, and if they believed it to be a genuine movement of God, they could affirm it. When Peter and John arrived and saw that people were genuinely giving their lives to the Lord Jesus, they prayed and laid their hands on the believers so that the Holy Spirit would come down on them. Listen to chapter 8, verse 15. After they went down there, okay, now one second, let me interject this. After they went down there, we may think they went down means you go south. (laughs) That's not what that is. Jerusalem was was higher in elevation, and so pretty much from anywhere in Jerusalem, you would go down to anywhere that you were going, but Samaria was north of Jerusalem. So after they went down there, they went north to Samaria, after they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. So what's up with this? Why didn't the Holy Spirit come on them when they were saved? Why did the apostles Peter and John have to lay their hands on them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit? It seems to me that the best explanation is that God intended it to be this way for the Jewish Christians. They had already experienced Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit had come down on them, and they had spoken in languages that they hadn't studied. It was a very distinguishing moment. It was a very defining moment in their lives when the Holy Spirit came down, and they spoke in different languages. But I suspect that there may have been a feeling of moral superiority. The Jews may have given the nod to Gentiles who were trusting in Jesus, but they may have felt that the Gentile Christians weren't on the same par as the Jewish Christians. So it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to come upon the Samaritans as he did the Jews in Acts 2. This showed Peter and John that the Holy Spirit was not playing favorites. The gospel tore down the wall of division between the Jew and non-Jews. The Holy Spirit came down on the Jews. The Holy Spirit came down on 
the Samaritans. Now, we're not told that they spoke in tongues. We are going to see that when the Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles in a little bit, in just a, a few chapters. But I believe that they spoke in different languages to validate to Peter and John, who would go back to the apostles and say, you know what? They experienced the Holy Spirit just the same way we did. God is not playing favorites. The Jews have no... Um, upper hand over the Samaritans or over anyone that's trusting in Jesus because God's Holy Spirit is tearing down the dividing wall. Well, in verses 18 through 24, the attention refocuses upon Simon. Remember him? He was the former sorcerer. You know, he had been made a name for himself with all of his supernatural powers, and then he got saved and apparently lost that. Now he wants the power that the apostles had. He was enamored with the power to do miracles, and he offered money, apparently, to uh, Peter and John so that they would somehow give him the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit upon others. The apostles were furious and told him he had better get right with God. The gift of the Holy Spirit was free. Any attempt to purchase the gift of the Spirit rendered the deal null and void. They got angry at him. They said, you better get right with God. And as we look at Simon's response, it appears that he was truly broken. Uh, he may have also pleaded with Peter and John. We know that he did, but he may have pleaded with them to pray for him because he felt unworthy to approach the Lord on his own probably because he was genuinely broken. This is the beauty of the gospel. No matter what we do, that if we confess it and go to the Lord and seek forgiveness, that we can be forgiven by our gracious Lord. Listen to Acts chapter 8, verse 25. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is Peter and John, they traveled back to Jerusalem. So they traveled back to Jerusalem, but the verse doesn't finish there. They traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They, they didn't just travel, once again, they didn't just travel from Samaria, back to Jerusalem, just made a quick shot to get back there as quickly as possible, we are told that as they were traveling back, they were preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They were so convinced that the Lord was working among the Samaritans that they stopped along the way as they were making their way back home to preach in more cities of Samaria. The stain of racism had been broken by the gospel. In verses 26 through 29, an angel of the Lord told Philip to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This road was southwest of Jerusalem, and uh, the natural route that someone would take uh, to travel to Egypt and beyond, well, that was this road. So we're told that Philip came upon a prominent Ethiopian eunuch. And by the way, who is this Philip? Well, he's one of the deacons. We're told that Philip came upon a prominent Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot. Philip had cultivated such a close relationship with the Lord that he could sense that the Spirit was telling him to go and join that chariot. Well, in verses 30 through 39, Philip stepped up into the chariot and shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. 
a little research. It doesn't take much. Just, I mean, maybe your Bible, uh, the, the side notes or maybe the footnotes actually tell you that the passage that this Ethiopian eunuch was reading was Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. So he was reading Isaiah chapter 53. He had the Isaiah scroll and he was reading what we call verses 7 and 8. Listen to verse 35. Philip proceeded to tell him, the eunuch, the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. So so Philip began to tell him the good news, the gospel about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. That's incredible. Philip started to talk about Jesus and the gospel beginning in Isaiah 53. And many Christians would probably wonder why Philip didn't start with a passage like John 3.16 or the book of Romans. Well, for beginners, the books of John, the book of John and the letter of to the Romans had not been written yet. <laughs> so he couldn't take them to there. And uh, but uh, but also we need to realize that believers in the first part of the book of Acts only had the Old Testament. Not only had John and Romans not been written, but uh, but probably most, if not all of the rest of the books. There may have been just a few, but they were just being circulated. And so there was no New Testament to go to. And so, of course, he would talk out of the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, to the person who has studied the Old Testament, we realize that the gospel is written all over its pages. There is so much in the Old Testament, particularly passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and the whole... uh, the whole book of Leviticus, as we read about the sacrificial laws and realize that all of them pointed to Jesus, the ultimate sacrificial lamb. We could go to the book of Exodus and and read about the Passover lamb and how God's wrath passed over those who consumed of the lamb and who took its blood and painted it on their doorposts and on the lintel above their door and point out to the fact that Jesus was that Passover lamb that pointed to Jesus. I'm telling you that the person who has read and studied the Old Testament realizes that the gospel is all over the pages of the Old Testament. It is so crystal clear. Well, there is one other thing that I want to draw your attention to uh, in this section, and it's a statement ascribed to Philip that does not appear in the Christian Standard Bible and some other newer translations. Verse 37 is missing. If you look at the Christian Standard Bible, it has verse 36, and then it goes to verse 38. Verse 37 is missing. Because of this, we don't hear Philip answer the Ethiopian's question by saying something to the effect, if you believe, you may be baptized. Well, I'm telling you, I've heard people before get irate when they see translations like the Christian Standard Bible or the NIV or some other translations that omit a few verses, and they claim that the newer translations take verses out of the Bible, and they just really rile people up. It's an emotional argument. It's a nonsensical, emotional argument. Yet that's not at all what's going on as far as the CSB and others taking verses whimsically out of the Bible. That's not what's going on. 
If you investigate Acts 8.37 and a few other passages, there's not many, but there are a few other passages. We talked about um, a passage in John where uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery. I even noticed in my King James Version Schofield Bible where it put in brackets that whole story and it said that it did not appear in the earliest manuscripts. If you go to the end of the Gospel of Mark, it does have a big portion of Mark chapter 16. It says it does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. It very well may be the Word of God. It very well may be have have written been written by the original writers, but... If you do a little research, and let's come back to Acts 8.37, because all of it is, is the same. It's all, they, they, the translators choose to either put those verses in or take them out uh, based on their conviction of whether or not it was genuinely written by the original author. Um, one of the things we know about Acts chapter 8, verse 37 is that it does not show up in the Greek manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts. Um, they, they show up later in later manuscripts, but they don't show up in the earliest of manuscripts. And so this leads scholars to believe that Acts 8.37 was not, or probably was not, written by Luke. He wrote the rest of the book, but he probably didn't write verse 37. So where did verses like Acts 8.37 come from? Well, they seem to have been added later, probably by a well-intentioned scribe or scribes who felt that some words needed to be inserted into the text to help it to make more sense. It very well may be that Acts 8.37 was written by Luke. It also may be true that it was not written by Luke. I just want you to know that if if we're serious about this and really put our minds to it and think clearly about this, we realize that it is possible that there are some words that could be inserted over time by well-intentioned or maybe people that are not so well-intentioned. But that doesn't change the fact that 99.9% of the Scripture we know exactly what was written by the original authors because we have thousands of manuscripts that are compared to each other, and we know which are the earlier manuscripts and which were the later manuscripts. And uh, so I'm just telling you, don't get upset uh, when you see verse uh, 37 not in Scripture because whether Acts 8.37 was actually said by Philip and recorded by Luke or not, it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter. Its presence or absence doesn't change any part of the story. We know that Philip would have said something like it, so we aren't troubled if some Bible translators omit a verse because they think it wasn't written by the original author. Well, verse 40, the last verse in this chapter, tells us that Philip traveled about 20 miles northwest to the coastal city of Azotus. Eventually, he ended up in Caesarea, but this is Caesarea Maritima, and Maritima means by the sea, Caesarea by the sea. Uh, so just a little tidying up before we go into our time of prayer. Uh, this is not Caesarea Philippi. Philip did not go to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was where Jesus once took his disciples, and that's about 30 miles north, a little bit east, of the Sea of Galilee. 
So if you can imagine where the Sea of Galilee is, go 30 miles north, a little bit to the east, and that's where Caesarea Philippi is. But that's not this verse. That's not in verse 40. That's not this Caesarea. This Caesarea is Caesarea Maritima. It was a port city on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was about, if you could imagine the Sea of Galilee again, this Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, was about 50 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, mostly west, but south of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was right there on the sea. I've been to Caesarea Maritima. Uh, the ruins are so clear uh, where the horse races were and where, I mean, there were just a lot of neat things that have been preserved in that area. But uh, we're going to read more about this city in the book of Acts as Peter makes his way there on an occasion and then as Paul is taken there as a prisoner. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read about how Philip was ready and willing to share the good news of the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, may we be just as ready. Help us to already have an eye open to what you are doing around us. May we refuse to overlook someone that you would have us give the greatest news that they will ever hear, the message that Jesus died for them and will save them if they will only trust in him. Help us, Lord, to always be restfully available to you. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at mattsmusings.net and I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.